Good afternoon, everyone, or it's afternoon in London. Um, my guest today is uh, uh, is back. Actually, uh, we we did a podcast on art business uh, uh, about twelve months ago. Uh, uh, Anindo Sen, uh, well, welcome, Anindo. What time is it where you are? Can you tell us where you are? Yeah, I'm based in Bangalore right now in India, and it's around eight thirty in the evening. In the evening, which is why you said good evening when we met before the podcast started. Right. <laughs> but it's afternoon here, so it's not too bad a, a time difference. Yeah. Um, and before um, before I continue, I just wanted to welcome listeners back to the Art Business Podcast. Uh, it's been several months since I've recorded one, and I thought now it's the new year, it's time to go for it again. Uh, so welcome back, everyone. And I, I hope it, I'm sure it'll be well worth the wait. And I've got some very exciting guests uh, to follow up. Uh, later, later in the year. Um, so, um, as in, as Anindo's already said, uh, he's he's based in in India and currently in Bangalore. And this podcast is very much about uh, what's going on in India from from Anindo's viewpoint as someone who's actually uh, based in, in in India. Uh, so, I was just going to start Anindo with with asking you whether you could give us a brief overview of the of the Indian art market. Yeah. So I think um, it's good to start with a disclaimer. I don't profess to be an expert on the market, but yes, I'm closer to the ground and I closely track what's happening in the market and the wider art ecosystem. And uh, it's it's an area of interest for me, both for my, my writing as well as for my research. So I think uh, that's what I would like to share. Uh, that's where I will be coming from. The second part is also that the Indian art market is an emerging art market and there's a lot that is growing and getting molded as we speak. So I think expertise is overrated in any case because the variables are changing, things are scaling up and there's a lot of dynamism. So I think those two things kept in mind with an open mind, we can always uh, discuss the market. So I think uh, uh, in terms of overview, I don't want to get too much into the historical aspect or the art history aspect because that's a separate thing in itself. Uh, but just to put the context, uh, art does not exist in isolation. Uh, it is uh, part of a certain society and a certain culture and a certain political context. Uh, and I think India has had a long and unbroken tradition of art and culture, uh, a, a rich cultural tradition, and which has experienced uh, close intermingling cultural exchanges with both the West and the Far East over millennia. So I think uh, it has a strong, uh, in a modern context or a current context, a very strong national cultural context, but it also has a very hybrid cultural context and the art that has been created. So the cultural producers over the millennia, over the centuries, I think have borrowed from that, have expressed their context in that, uh, in uh, for that period and era. And I think, uh, uh, so if you look at from the ancient to medieval period, obviously in one broad sweep, uh, similar to the ancient Greeks, I, I, I know David that you you it's it's a favorite subject of yours and your PhD as well, Greek and Roman history. Uh, so we also had a lot of sculpture. Uh, that was the predominant uh, material media that was used, and a lot of it can be seen in temple architecture. So I think we can't get into detail on anything, but I'll mention these things in passing. So if listeners want to understand any of this better, there is Google to the rescue. You can 
explore further and if you have access to libraries you can read up on books on the subject but i think a good way to understand ancient indian sculpture is to either visit india and visit these sites or read about temple architecture uh and and then there were also i understand in the west the perspective on art especially pre modern is more focused on painting especially uh, not pre modern uh, yeah so renaissance period onwards so in india you had a lot of murals uh, uh again relate religious in context i think ajanta and elora are the two stand out cave murals uh which have survived especially ajanta and but but the main manifestation of painting was actually very different from the west uh which was more in the form of miniature paintings uh which was uh, in which uh, was mainly patronized by the royal courts before the british came in and you had different schools like you had the rajasthani school you had the mughal school you had the uh, pahari school you had the and in the south you had the deccan school so these are and they were not in isolation so you know it's like they influenced each other so when the mughals came in uh they obviously fought some of these kingdoms co-opted some of these kingdoms and there was a lot of synergy so for example you could have a hindu artisan or an artist working in the mughal court so he br he brought in a certain a certain aspects of the culture that was part of his lived experiences in terms of techniques in terms of motifs and you can see a very hybrid form of art in most uh styles uh when we are talking about this and the other is of course architecture so architecture like uh, you know uh, like in the uk also we had gothic etc and all a lot of architecture uh, was closely fused with art forms at that time and especially because i said art in india had a three dimensional component in terms of sculpture fused with uh temple architecture friezes etc so i think that's a very it's not comprehensive it's not representative that but these are some of the highlights i think if we look at uh till about 1700 or 1750 then i think uh, uh the british came over they colonized us and at that point uh the main one of the forms that came up is what we call the company school or 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 the east india company patronized painting in fact there was a very interesting exhibition called uh, uh forgotten masters i think that that's the name of the exhibition it happened at the wallace collection in 2019 uh so if some of you listeners were there in london at that time might have visited it and uh, so basically what happened is a lot of these artisans were uh, earlier patronized by the mughal courts or the rajput courts etc but when the british came in they lost their patrons and the, for example the court of awadh which is now lucknow they, so when they were defeated by the british so some of these and the british were trying to as colonizers they were trying to figure out an alien geography and alien culture and they wanted to document and there's a lot to critique about it but from a specific uh, art history point of view i think a lot of these artists found commissions and patrons in the british colonizers and a certain style academic uh, watercolor based which was in sync with what was happening there at that time uh, an interesting outlier is somebody uh, is zofany uh johan zofany who, who who actually was an artist of fortune who came to india who thought he might get a lot of good commissions and there are some paintings by him from the colo early colonial era so 1770s 80s that exist in fact i've seen his work at the national gallery in london as well so so i think that that, that is a kind of art that was uh, and and then i think in the what would be the peak victorian era so 70 uh, 1880s 90s around that time in india the seeds of nationalism were been 
were being sown and India was, you know, starting to believe that, you know, we should get our independence back. I think the first standout artist who still remains a standout is somebody named Raja Ravi Varma, who fused Western oil painting techniques with uh, Indian cultural motives. And he drew gods and goddesses and other uh, scenes from mythology, etc., which are masterpieces, each one of them. And uh, I think he's the standout from that era. Then in the early 20th century, uh, you had uh, the Bengal school. So what happened is 1900-1905, that was the period when the freedom movement really took off. And Bengal, which was the cap... So Cal Calcutta was still the capital of the British. They moved to Delhi in 1911. Uh, but around that time is when a lot of artists uh, and the cultural arbiters... Uh, poets, writers, etc. They started talking about the need for a national identity, the need for a artistic language, etc. And that's when the Bengal movement came about. And they basically rejected the academic school, uh, which is, you know, sort of uh, at that point being, uh, you know, sort of promoted by the British. And uh, for about 15-20 years, they were the ones who sort of held forth uh, in terms of the national psyche from an art perspective. And then I think more modern values and aesthetics and styles also started coming in. So India got independence in 1947. So before that, you had like the standout artist is probably Amrita Shergill, uh, who's now, I will, I, I might talk about her uh, later as well if she, she comes up in context. But this, here I'm just trying to summarize and set a context to the art story of India. So uh, she was the standout artist, Amrita Shergill. She died very young, if I I think at the age of 28. Uh, but she was very precautious. She went to Paris to learn, I think at the age of 15 or 16. And even though she died young, there is a, uh, there's no, there's not a sizable body of work, but there is enough uh, paintings, uh, really high, you know, of the highest order. So, so uh, she's there. Then you had others like, uh, Nandalal Bose, Abdul Rahman Chuktai. And uh, then when we got independence, around that time, the, the group, uh, at that time, manifestos were in vogue. The first half of the 20th century, group of artists got together, wrote manifestos. So the Bombay Progressives Group, uh, Progressive Artists Group, who we generally refer to as the Bombay Progressives, because they started out in Bombay. So people like Souza, Raza, M.F. Hussain, Ara, they, they sort of got together and they rejected the Bengal school and they wanted, uh, you know, sort of post-independence, they had a fresh approach. Uh, the group per se lasted not too long because some of them migrated, like Souza, I think. Souza moved to the UK, Raza moved to France, uh, MF Hussain stayed back. Uh, but, but I think, and uh, some of the other junior artists, you know, joined that group. So these are the key uh, sort of groups that were there. Bombay Progressives, while it was not long-lasting, but it has had a lasting impact in terms of even today, some of the highest prices in auctions are commanded by that group. I think in terms of uh, the key constituents, uh, in terms of auction houses, uh, surprisingly, you have very strong auction houses in India domestic. So I think Saffron Art, uh, which we've studied as a case study, uh, which actually went the other way. It was it started as an online art auction and then pivoted to also a physical uh, auction house. 
then you have the Pundoles and you have Astaguru. So these are the auction houses. Sathibis and Christie's have tried their luck, but they have sort of not succeeded. Christie's uh, has a longer history. They, they they did auctions in Mumbai, I think, uh, about 10 years back. They were doing auctions, 2013, 14, 15, that period. And they had decent results. But I think global priorities, uh, same thing with Sathibis. Sathibis did their first auction in 2018, 2018. Uh, but I think what has happened is ownership has changed. They are privately held. Their priorities have also changed. I think my my sense is that they primarily focus on the Western collector and the diaspora collector for Indian art. And they are able to access them much better sitting in the New York auctions or the London auctions. I think uh, to target the Indian collector, it's a much bigger challenge for them. There are entry barriers. I think Saffron Art, Pundoles, Ashtaguru, they have ring fenced it much better so i think uh, so that's and and christie's i think is focusing more on hong kong going by reports because that's their entry point to asia um, and i think uh, yeah so that's that's in terms of galleries you have so in india um, the, the highest concentration of galleries is in delhi and mumbai so if somebody is wanting to get a sense of the indian art market if these are the two cities to visit of course the art fairs you have delhi art fair uh, we'll probably speak about it later, uh, which is now, you know, it's almost 15 years old. And the Mumbai Art Fair, which started last year. So these are the two places where you'll see aggregation of galleries. Uh, it's the easiest way to meet everybody together. Otherwise, you can come to any of these cities and, you know, sort of do uh, spend some time uh, visiting the exhibitions. Uh, Delhi is more conservative. It has more of modern art galleries. Uh, like the Delhi Art Gallery, uh, etc. And you have contemporary art galleries also like Nathur Morte. Uh, Bombay has both. The Bombay collector base is more open to uh, contemporary art. And you have a lot more contemporary art galleries in Mumbai. Uh, so you have galleries like uh, K-Mold, which is one of the distinguished galleries. It's completing 60 years this year. Uh, I mean, last year. It's, it's it's in its 60th year. Then you have Experimenter, which started about 15 years back in Calcutta. Now it's opened one outpost in Mumbai. You have Chatterjee and Lal. You have Zaveri Contemporary. You have younger galleries like Turk and Akara. Akara has both modern and contemporary galleries. Uh, uh, you have Project 88. You have many others. But in 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 terms of concentration, these are the two cities. The other main cities have one or two. Uh, preeminent galleries in their geography. Uh, but for contemporary art, especially, Bombay is the preferred destination. And these are the two places. So I think that's that's a brief overview of the, this. And uh, I think uh, I just mentioned the market size. So I think the Indian art market in terms of size. So the first, I think we have to take it to the pinch of salt because the art market is very opaque. And uh, most of the players are private. So there are no reporting uh, requirements which are legally mandatory, both in India as well as globally. So I also don't give a lot of credence beyond a point to the global art market size, which like it's been around 65 billion forever, other than pandemic distortions, etc. But by coming back to so uh, there's this state of the Indian art market that got published, and they have been publishing this for a while now. So I think it can be considered to be relatively credible. They reported that the auction market uh, was about 144 million uh, 
USD, uh, which I, I think that is the reported, you know, sort of more trackable or, uh, you know, sort of value uh, that can be validated. So I think that's, that's one slice of the market. And this is an all time high. Uh, the previous occasion when it reached that level was before the Lehman Brothers crash, which is when the Indian art market has really boomed and went bust after that. So about but it, again, the qualifier here is that the Indian rupee has depreciated probably by 60, 70% since in the last 15 or 20 years. So, you know, 144 million today and 144 million then is different. So, but it's 144 million and about 75 to 80% actually is modern art. So the contemporary art, uh, in terms of lots, it is growing and it is, say, for example, the number of lots could be 20, 25%, but in terms of value, it is still less than 5%. Hmm. Because uh, if we get a chance later to talk about the artists, we can talk about who's doing how in auctions. But in terms of the market components, it's mostly dominated by moderns. And then you have pre-moderns. Pre-moderns are people who were born before you know, sort of the uh, Amrita Shergil, uh, uh, etc. that I was talking about, the Bengal school, uh, things like that. So pre-moderns will be another 10%. So 80 to 90%, 95% is actually these. And contemporary art is still a small part, but it is the most exciting, most dynamic part of the market, which we will come to later. So I think that's that's my overall summary for the Indian art market. And when you were talking about that uh, amount of, 150 million that, that that's right. just all, that's just, that's just from published auction houses rather than private treaty sales right yeah right so, so i think might, in terms of size we also another... must understand you know sorry sorry david I, no i was just going to say you might typically uh for, certainly from the western viewpoint of the art market someone like claire mcandrew in the art market report she would right. tend to say that the private treaty sales in auction houses have really grown over the last 20 years. So they're, they're, yes. they're like 60% of their sales now seem to be private treaties. Mm -hmm. So so you could suggest that there's a, probably another 150 to 200,000 pounds in the private sector and the private treaties. Yeah. So the only thing I would qualify is that the dynamics of the Indian market are not the same as the dynamics of the Western yeah. market. It's obviously That's... not as mature. And, yeah. and the auction houses bring in the big ticket value sales because you know like um, where's where's uh, there's a huge arbitrage between primary market sales and uh, uh, auction house tertiary sales yes and uh, also because in india the number of artists whose works are well documented and there's a great chain of provenance etc is relatively lower like india is a 5000 year old country in terms of history but it has a art history of less than 100 years for example yes. so and very few artists got the validation till about 20, 30 years back. So it's only starting now. So because of that, the auction houses, I think, get those big ticket sales. But your point is valid. There, one can make assumptions and smart, work out a smart guesstimate. Mm -hmm. But I'm not conjecturing that right now because for me, that's not as important. What is more important to understand is the variables, is the dynamics, the trends, uh, and and you know sort of those factors. And from oh, yeah. from the few light, if I can represent a Western viewpoint, um, that when I started really recognizing the names during that that potted history of of the the, the India and the art, art the art world in India, I I had been to the Wallace Collection exhibition, which was amazing, and it was obviously this was part of a movement towards the looking at 
a post-colonial critique and looking at sort of uh, what was happening with British uh, colonization of India and the, the way art reflected that. And it was fantastic, very, very interesting exhibition. And of course, a lot of those works, it's almost, it reminds me of um, antiquity where the Romans invade Greece and they uh, the, the, the artists remain Greeks, but the Romans become new patrons. So that seemed to me to what be what was going on in India at the time. Suddenly you've got new pet, you've got similar artists and maybe in the same tradition of apprentice and master, uh, but suddenly they're Great. working for a new patron, or a lot of their work is now for the for the British patrons. And hence, I guess, the, the reason why, as in that exhibition, you're looking at portable works of art uh, that can be taken back to to to, to Great Britain. Uh, by those by those patrons whereas you you know in earlier in Indian history you're often looking at less obviously portable works like Indian miniatures and um, although they're small they're not meant to be you know passed around as it were and and, um, and also your cave paintings and so on so I guess that's Great. the moment that you began to get more of a more of Indian art um, moving around the world or certainly to the to, to the Britain and I, I think that the first names I, I think myself and probably most listeners will recognise from auctions in, say, London and New York are are definitely the moderns. Sousa and Raza are now very, very familiar yeah. names um, to us because we see their names coming up at auction. We see relatively high prices for their work. Presumably yeah. those works are often selling to... Uh, do you know anything about... Uh, it would be interesting to know what proportion of those works, and obviously we won't know the exact number, but... Do you, do you have any instinct for how many of those are selling to what we used to call NRIs, the non-resident Indians, um, and, and uh, how many to Western buyers, traditional Western buyers? So, uh, so first, it's difficult to put a number because, yeah. first of all, art is very illiquid yeah. and works come up in auction after a long period. And the second thing is the auction houses are not really very transparent about yeah. who's buying the work. So yeah. I think anything that I say will be you know, an assumption-based guess, which I will avoid. Absolutely. But it suffices to say that conversations with galleries suggest that the diaspora has, you know, taken an active interest yes. in uh, in collecting Indian art. And uh, there are many, like if you see Komal Shah, who primarily uh, collects women artists, uh, there are Indian diaspora collectors who are becoming more and more recognized. And even within South Asia, there are collectors who, like uh, Kiran Nadar, who's uh, you know the chairperson and founder of the Kiran Nadar Museum of Art, or the Samdanis who are based in Bangladesh. Now, a lot of them are now globally recognized collectors. Yes. And things like that. So I think both diaspora as well as domestically in India, you have a lot of um, collectors who are and I think it's it's the financial muscle as well as the passion for collecting art, which when they come together, I think there is, and, and goes without saying, the diaspora has been behind the rise of uh, Indian modern and contemporary art in the West. That one can say, you know, without any doubt, but how many have bought, what percentage in terms of value, it's, it's a more difficult one to answer. But, but. What you've just said, I think, is probably mainly true. That that the diaspora is the one. It's the it's the fact that there are uh, diaspora Indians from the diaspora on the diaspora, as it were, who are who are purchased who are living in the, in the traditional Western countries and 
and are very wealthy, um, we're probably talking about ultra high net worth individuals now because we all yeah. know that that social group in India has made a lot of money. Uh, and, and maybe we could talk about that later. You know, has there been a growth since the say the start of the pandemic in the number of HNWIs and and UHNWIs, the ultra high net worth individuals? Um, is that something? I that think, you can... uh, yeah. So I think I'll, I'll I'll discuss this in the context of the art market. Sure. So I think obviously the Indian art market has been growing uh, since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, and uh, so in terms of the trajectory, I think between ninety five and two thousand eight is when the Indian art market took off. Yes, uh, especially in the period between two thousand two thousand eight, yeah. and more specifically two thousand four to two thousand eight. But after that, uh, the 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 contemporary art market, which was fueled by a lot of speculation, uh, really crashed. And I think the the ten years after that were a period of consolidation and steady growth. And it's only after the pandemic it's really grown. So I think there are certain things that are intrinsic to the market, but I think the India as an economy has been growing very well and it is expected to grow, continue to grow because it has a large population. It has a young workforce, uh, which means a very dynamic workforce. And the, there's a large population of skilled and English speaking workforce. So all this adds up to, you know, sort of, uh, potential and both the manufacturing and the servicing sec service sectors which is like IT have been firing well in the recent years and the government has been investing in a lot of infrastructure which further catalyzes growth so I think all this is adding up and uh, from a long-term perspective in fact I wrote about it in the Artnet article that I wrote on the Art Mumbai that that in the uh, it's been widely reported that in the next three to four years, India will become the third largest economy after the US and China. And India is already as big or marginally bigger economy than the UK. So it's it, in terms of size as an economy, it has it has a long way to go to catch up with China. That's a different discussion. But if you're comparing countries other than the US and China, India is a large economy. It's just that it has more mouths to feed. It yeah. has... 20 times the population of the UK, but the same economic size. So I think that's where, so I don't think India's, uh, so that's that's there. And uh, like Mumbai, for example, you outside of US and China, India, uh, Mumbai has the most number of billionaires yeah. uh, other than London and Singapore. So yes. for example, if you take Miami or Dubai uh, or Paris, which are high profile art fair destinations, Mumbai has more billionaires than these cities. And yes, of course, one can say that if an art fair is happening in Miami, billionaires from all across the US come and attend it. So they have a much bigger catchment area. But it, it is also important to cognize for the fact that Mumbai as a city in its own way is an economic powerhouse. And you were asking me about trends. So yes, it's been growing the number of uh, millionaires, but also like uh, that same report that I'm referring to uh, they track something called centi-millionaires, which is people with investable assets of 100 million centi-millionaires. And uh, they said that in Mumbai, uh, in the next 10 years, that number will go up by 80%, wow. which is one of the highest amongst all global cities. Yes. Uh, so even now, even if it is, uh, you know, sort of uh, not in the top three or five, if it grows by 80%, it is likely to 
you know compete with a lot of top cities in the world so i think these are things that as an economy there are clear indicators that there is an increase in the number of high ultra uh, high net worth individuals and uh, what is also happening is some of it is going into collecting but a lot of it is also seeping into arts philanthropy uh-huh. uh, you know and i think uh, i you know if we get an opportunity we'll talk about that in this podcast uh i think that's a very important thing to cognize for uh because the potential there is also very huge so i the, i think uh yeah and so in terms of gen- in sorry to interrupt in terms of generations um we you know we we've heard a lot about um on studies of 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 billionaires and the increase in in billionaires right. from all over the from all the all over the world uh at least in the major economies um that we're, that we're hearing that a lot of the uh, my generation like the boomer generation are now retiring and passing on a lot of wealth to younger to younger members of the family who themselves are now beginning to buy art and 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 that may be something to do with the reason why you're beginning to get more interest in contemporary ultra contemporary over the last few years um can you see you know so maybe in a nutshell you could you could say something about um because i've only really witnessed the the diaspora uh buying interest in in indian art in in say london at, at, at auction in particular um but right. would you say a lot of is is there a growth in in the big cities such as mumbai and delhi is there a growth in the number of people who are staying there and maybe collecting art and is it a signifier of social status and or wealth and are they creating art foundations and what what about the generations is there an in, is there a, is there is there an interest in younger wealthy people in collecting art as if you like as a status symbol or as a a symbol of their lifestyle so i think i see it slightly differently uh when we look at wealth so again i think india is on a different trajectory and maturity in term as an economy mm-hmm. compared to the west Mm-hmm. so we have to organize for the fact that when the british left india in 1947 it left india very impoverished mm-hmm. the only people who had money were people who had uh, you know sort of who who were the princely states people with a sort of a royal background or a quasi royal background part of the royal court or people who had uh, let's just say who had who were obsequious to the british who worked for them you know sort of uh grease their palms through that process yes so you know the vast majority of india was left impoverished the vast majority of india was agrarian and that is where the develop the growth story started but till 1990 india was a very uh not a communist but it was a socialist economy mm-hmm. uh more based on uh, the principles that say russia used to follow we used to have five year plans like them and the 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 industries were very highly regulated uh you know sort of there was a lot of licensing involved there were a lot of uh you know limits to how fast a company could grow or an industry could grow the investment was foreign investment was curtailed so i think india's real growth story starts only from 1991 when the economy was liberalized and opened up hmm. so what you see so when we talk about wealth there are different and we have to classify yes there is intergenerational wealth and then there is also self made wealth mm-hmm. and i think in india the second story is much more powerful and the third third dimension that i will talk there are a few more but i think we'll stick to these three mm-hmm. because <laughs> there's a lot that we can talk about in the indian art market 
whether it's uh, the museums, the galleries, the art fairs, etc. So I'd rather focus on that. So I think intergenerational wealth, yes, it is being passed on, but there's a significant increase in the number of self-made millionaires and billionaires in the last 20 years, because since 1991, when it opened up, there are large sectors like the financial industry has just exploded and Mumbai has been the you know sort of pivot. Uh, similarly, the IT industry, of which Bangalore, the city where I'm based in, is the nerve center, has really exploded and created this large pool of self-made rupee millionaires and billionaires, for example. Uh, and uh, then came the startup ecosystem in the last 10 years, where, you know, sort of from IT services, which was growing and has continued to grow and has scaled up, you've had a lot of startups where people have, you know, sort of made money. So that's, I think that is... That is the set of people, the young people who have, uh, you know, sort of used, who have through entrepreneurial zeal made money. And and, a and the other thing, and the third one that I spoke about is the diaspora. So what, one thing people don't realize is how large, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, I think. So, um, one of the things people don't realize is that India actually has a diaspora of almost 18 to 20 million, mm -hmm. which is like the largest population. It's like the size of a mid-sized European country, probably. And, you know, it's, they're spread all over the world. And they've only become, they're becoming richer and more influential. So you take the US, for example, uh, they're the highest per capita income demographic in terms of migrant groups. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the current vice president is partly of Indian origin. The, the head of Google and Microsoft are of Indian origin. Yes, sure. So, so the thing is, so these three, and, and so each one has its own sphere of influence, financially and culturally, and it's all adding up. But coming back to intergenerational wealth that you said, there's a lot of uh, large business conglomerates which were founded uh, either in the 60s or 70s or post-independence era, which grew in a regulated environment till the 1980s. And then post-liberalization, they really scaled up. And now they are passing uh, their uh, businesses to the next generation. And in sure. some cases, there is a third generation that is now stepping up. So sure. these people, obviously, uh, and, and we can talk about, for example, we'll talk about the Ambani's and they have opened up a cultural center uh, last year. So we can talk about that. We can talk about, uh, uh, so for example, there's the Pyramals, there's the Ambani's, there's the Nadars. These are large business houses, which are first generation, second generation, or third generation. Uh, and they're all dollar billionaires. So, so mm -hmm. you take uh, uh, the Ambani's, for example, who are the richest Indian family as of now. Depends on the share prices, keeps going up and down. But Mukesh Ambani, for example, is in the top 10 in the Forbes billionaire list, usually. And yeah. his his wealth is, I think, is in the range of about 100 billion, which is yes. which is actually in the same range of as, say, a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffet or, or, or even uh, Jeff Bezos post-divorce. So yeah. I think it's around 100 to 120 billion is the value, value of their wealth as reported. So, yeah. so, you know, I think there is a lot of scale. Similarly, the Nader family who... Uh, Kiran Nadar, who is the founder of the Kiran Nadar Museum of Art, KNMA, mm -hmm. which is founded in 2010, I think. So her husband, Shiv Nadar, 
is the founder of HCL Tech, which is one of India's largest IT companies. Mm-hmm. And I think his wealth will be in the range of 25 to 30 billion. So mm-hmm. this is the kind of wealth and they are India's largest art collectors. Yeah. And their collection is what has, uh, you know, sort of uh, led to these public art museums that we're talking about, the KNMA in Delhi or, or the Nita Mukesh Ambani Cultural Center, NMACC in Mumbai, which is opened last year. So there is a clear connection between wealth generation leading to private philanthropy or legacy creation leading to public art centers or museums or galleries. So that, because one of the things that the more sociological studies of buyers on the art market uh, has pointed out through interviews and surveys is that the millennial uh, generations um, tend to be more philanthropic. So they're they're, they're collecting art. They don't like the, they don't like to be labeled as collecting art for purely for investment. They, 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 they see themselves as wanting to do more with their art collections than um, maybe earlier generations typically had done. Right. I think there the other qualifier that I'll add is that as India is getting richer and a lot of the population is younger, yes, income disparity is going up because it's a capitalist consumerist model, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but the number of rich is growing and the number of young rich is growing and yes. a lot of them are tra- So we live in an extremely interconnected globalized world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are traveling abroad very frequently for work or holiday. And many of them, especially the next generation, are also studying abroad. So yeah. their outlook, their taste, and uh, their art preferences are increasingly globalized. Yes. So, so when they're coming back, a lot of them, I think, are more interested in art than somebody who's only lived in India. Sure. Because they have been exposed, he or she has been exposed to... Yeah art in museums, art fairs, galleries, and they visit people's houses. So I think that is also triggering that. The other thing is in India, India is also in the middle of a real estate boom. So if if I look at the last couple of years, real estate companies have been financially outperformers Mm -hmm. and that is expected to continue. And uh, because of that, as you build more homes, obviously there's more walls. and, And there is, I mean, the art market tends to glorify the activity of buying art as just collecting. But the truth is everybody starts decorating their house and at some point graduates to a collector who collects for the love of collecting. So I think in the initial phase of growth, I think the real estate market and housing boom is also an important factor. I think it's really interesting. And it, and, and we can see that throughout art history, can't we? That the... Um... Again, the the Romans uh, traditionally at least labelled themselves as not being into art. Uh, and at the moment they started conquering Greek cities in southern Italy, Sicily, and then Greece itself, they were taught about the arts by, you know, so that they're going abroad to a certain extent, albeit in a, in a more aggressive way. But it's those people that become the big art collectors, the ones who happen to be a governor, in, a Roman governor in Greece or the Eastern Mediterranean, who tend to then right. become the big, art collectors and those who don't who don't go to those places outside of Rome and Italy people like Cicero uh they they rely on agents who are working in those places and their taste and their understanding of art to to decorate their villas in Rome and Italy so it's probably a similar thing going on and as I understand it uh the the 
the priorities uh, as someone gets more wealthy are they buy their house, they buy their car, and then their refrigerator is very important. And then after that, art, they want to decorate their walls. So I, th I think that is something that's often um, overlooked, I think, by by those of us studying the art market. The number of, I mean, I, I, I tell my students when you're when you're in Sotheby's, if you go to previews on your own and listen to collect, potential collectors, not professional collectors or foundation collectors or museum collectors, but just like ordinary people with just wanted to decorate their house. If you listen to them talking, it really is like choosing, the, you know, a colour paint for your wall. Oh, I like the pink Andy Warhol because it'll go with my wall, with my the colour of that room. Um, so, so we forget that an art has often been very, very much about that, even from the Medici palaces where, you know, they're really wanting to decorate a lot of the walls of their, of their rooms. Uh, so it doesn't have a huge social meaning in this, in, in, in a public sense, if you like. Um, and I, I, just while I'm thinking about it, just to continue that story. So in that period, you rightly referred to between say 95 and 2008, uh, that was something that I witnessed as well. And I began to see contemporary Indian artists. Uh, they became big names, the obvious ones, um, uh, Bharti Kerr and Sabo Gupta. And I remember yeah. seeing their works appearing for sale at Sotheby's auctions in 2007, 2008, when the art market was at its height. Yeah. And, and, and people were, Western buyers, I think, were also really interested in buying their work. And what was interesting, it was in that sculptural tradition rather than painterly tradition that right. you talked about as always, always being part of Indian art. So, and then, right. and then after the Lehman Brothers crash in September, 2008, you're quite right. Those, it, the same was happening with Chinese contemporary art, you know, and, and art from other emerging economies, if you like, at that time. And then they also disappeared. Suddenly, suddenly their markets crashed, as I understand it, with the Chinese contemporary artists, as they did to a certain extent with the Indian contemporary artists. And then in the, since the crash of 2008, I guess it'd be quite interesting for you to go into a little bit more detail about the dynamics of the art market and, and, and why, you know, why people started then collecting more Maybe maybe it's a more conservative trend to go for the classic modern artists like Sousa and Raza. So I think there were two problems uh, in the Indian art market when it really boomed. One is that you had a lot of speculators coming in. Sure. Uh, people speculating on the asset rather than collecting long term, which is never a good thing for the market. Absolutely. And that focus was more on the contemporary side. And what was happening is because the contemporary art was getting a lot of buzz. So, for example, you mentioned Subodh Gupta, uh, Francois Pinot uh, at the Venice Biennale at his Palazzo Grassi, uh, you know, sort of put out Subodh Gupta's work uh, as the showcase. And, and validation like that sort of really sort of piqued a lot of collectors. And I don't want to compare because they're two different things, but the way crypto happened and NFT art happened, you know, and speculators just yep. latched onto it. Yep. A similar thing happened on Indian art because uh, people thought that this is one non-Western form of art, which I think can take off. Yep. And uh, they were buying ahead of the curve. Yeah. So that was an issue. The second issue with Indian art is, was that, and it's a challenge even today, is, is the lack of documentation, is the lack of archiving and the lack of provenance. A watertight provenance, because of which I think a lot of art market participants took advantage in a, like we say, an unregulated opaque market, 
where there is no proper price discovery, there's no proper transparency, and sold a lot of fakes. And I think that really created a bad reputation. And that, that happened in the masters, the moderns, etc. also. Yeah. So because of which, what has happened, and people realized that was an issue. So as a result, what happens is a lot of serious, serious collectors don't want to touch works or artists where they are concerned about. So if there's no catalog raisonné, for example, mm -hmm. and there is no, uh, you know, sort of long-standing scholarship about the artist's work, a lot of that has changed in the last 10 years. But we are talking about that period, which you yeah. mentioned, 95 to 2008. So I think uh, those are the needs, you know, we, we once you have. So what has happened from 2008 to now, the market has grown steadily. It has consolidated. The bigger names, therefore, have done well. So if you see in the last two, three years, and those very names, you know, uh, Gai Tonde, uh, Tab Mehta, uh, Suza, Hussain, Bakre, then Amrita Shergil, who, who achieved the highest ever, uh, her painting, the storyteller sold for about seven and a half million USD uh, September last year mm -hmm. at Saffron Art. So, and, and, and all these names that I mentioned, the, the standout works by them. So, so for example, Taib Mehta's Mahishashura Mardini series, which is basically a specific mythology context work. That, that series, you know, it has created records, large works, Gaitonde's uh, abstract works. So these are, and especially when they come with a higher quality provenance, for example, the Glenbara Museum uh, of Japan, uh, the founder was one of the early uh, collectors of Indian art. Mm. So, so I think a lot of Westerners and say the Japanese, they, uh, a lot of them came as expats, diplomats or businessmen working in India and they picked up Indian art sort of as a souvenir. I don't think they were even thinking of collecting initially. Yes. I think it just started as, you know, I'm living in India, I'm working in India, I love Indian culture, so I must have some Indian art in my home. Yep. And I think from there, the love and passion grew and by the time they left, they had a sizable collection and even after they went back to their countries, they continued to collect and at that time, Indian art was very cheap. Yeah. And a lot of those collections are now coming back into auctions and yep. they have a relatively cleaner provenance because Sometimes they procured it directly from the artist or from the gallery who, uh, you know, sort of sold the artist. And uh, and and that is where I think uh, it's becoming more robust now, the Indian art market. Today, for example, you buy from a gallery, you'll clearly get a letter of authenticity. You'll sure. get a chain of provenance. So those things are not uh, issues anymore in the primary market. Yes. It is the secondary and the tertiary market where one has to be careful. Yes. And therefore... It's the individual's choice, the gallery he uh, visits or the art advisor he he or she, they work with. So I think the market is learning. But if I have to say the gallerist perspective, I think the gallerists are relatively far more uh, conservative when it comes to allowing any scope for speculation. So In auction houses, obviously the price discovery is transparent. So if two people bid, it can go wherever. But I think the key takeout from 2023 is that most uh, top modern artists, when they came to auction, and if the work was uh, 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 a prominent one in terms of the period and the subject, uh, they hit records, all-time records. And that is because such works are relatively rare, yeah. especially along with a good provenance.
Yeah, it's not dissimilar, therefore, to the, to the reasons why any works have, have been selling well over the last few years um from not you know from non-living artists in particular or classic modern right. you know living artists the only yeah. other aspect that i would like to add which is relatively unique to the indian art market is that the indian government has named nine artists as national treasures includes ah. uh amrita shegel for example rabindranath tagore etc. so these artists their works cannot be taken out of india ah yes so when they are sold in auction in india to me, the price is also a, an artificial function yeah. of this factor. So yeah. if an Amrita Shergill sold for seven and a half million, yes. I don't know whether its price could have been 10 million or 15 million if a Western collector was allowed to bid and take it out of the country. Or it Likewise, might it might have been yeah. less because if the if the, if you're getting this amazing, almost like gold medal prize from the Indian government. Uh, you know, if that hadn't happened, you there, there's also an argument that maybe they wouldn't have if the prices abroad wouldn't have been boosted. But presumably, did did the did the Indian government give any warning they were going to do this, or did it happen overnight? No, no, no. So this 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 Amrita Shetgill that sold it sold in Mumbai in an auction by an Indian auction house, oh. and goes without saying that artwork would have been bought by an Indian collector. Yes, or it would stay in India after the auction. It yeah. would have changed yeah. hands. But Wait, geographically, I... it was limited to here. And no, what, what I mean it is... also does on the flip side, on the other side, is an Amrita Shergill, which is already abroad before yeah. the rules came in. It well, stays there. Yeah. And, you know, sort of, I think a lot of diaspora collectors or even Indian collectors, when they buy it, say in an auction in London or an auction in New York, may not want to bring it back to India because the moment they bring it back, they won't be able to take, take it out it and out. sell it again. So it's... that sort of creates another barrier. That's really apart from all the bureaucracy yeah. and logistics and it, that is involved. Sim in similar things have happened in Italy recently with the with the modern artists, with the you know, with the, you you know about right. that. And suddenly their prices, the post-war artists, were started going up price for the same reason because suddenly they wouldn't be able to take them out the country if they're more than fifty years, I think, dead. I think it is. Um, so, and we right. see these we see these heritage issues in these patrimony issues. No, in I a think lot. it's required also. Uh, yeah. It's required also. I think the UK also has something where, you know, a museum is allowed to match the price achieved yeah. in auction. Yeah, we have the art that comes into operation. Yeah. So, the government could put a six-month export ban before allowing the money to be raised, yeah. Right. Um, oh, that's, that's, that's very interesting. So um, I read your article on the um, about the Mumbai Art Fair or, or, uh, that you wrote for Artnet. Really, really interesting article. Great illustrations as well. And I think listeners, if they could go to that article, we'll put the link in the on the on the um, uh, on the podcast uh, written material uh, for them to read it, because there's some really good illustrate. They can see some of the art that was selling at the Mumbai Art Fair. You've already said that Mumbai is where a lot of um, contemporary art scene is in india right. i think that's right and um is that also partly because is there a younger kind of work working wealthy person in mumbai maybe compared yeah. to other cities right so i think it's 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 partly to do with the culture of each of these cities yeah. mumbai has obviously benefited a lot more from the recent economic growth it has driven that growth in sectors like finance yes and a lot of them have come to work in the city Yes. In the 90s or in the 2000s, in the last 20, 25 years. So I think uh, a lot of them are in their 30s and 40s now. Yeah. And relatively speaking, they're younger collectors. Yeah, so I think the Mumbai Art Fair, uh, this was the first edition, the inaugural one. And therefore, in in a sense, it was a beta test of sorts. 
the focus was decidedly domestic, not international. And I think the organizers played to their strengths. So around 50 galleries participated, which is relatively small compared to the global fairs. Uh, so the India Art Fair, for example, has 100 galleries. It's planned this year. The Art Basel Hong Kong, which is returning to a full strength version in March this year, I think it will have more than 200 galleries, 230 to 35 galleries, if I remember mm -hmm. right. So 50 galleries is a small number, but the good thing is that all the top domestic galleries, especially from Delhi and Mumbai, were represented, practically yep. all of them. Yep. And uh, uh, the other good thing was that they demarcated a modern section and a contemporary section, sort of like Freeze, for example, with Freeze mm -hmm. Masterpiece in London. And I, I think that helped the visitors also uh, differentiate and, and you know navigate better. And... Uh, I like the contemporary section more. It was more spacious. It was curated better. And different uh, galleries adopted different strategies in terms of the number of artists, uh, the mm -hmm. density of works on display, the curation of the booth. And many of these galleries kept smaller works and works on paper to keep the entry point lower for uh, newer buyers because it was the first edition of an art fair in a city, in the city. And therefore, if new buyers came in who were not going to galleries, I think that was uh, smart on their part. That's a great and, strategy. Uh, um, just, just, just briefly to interrupt. Um, that's almost the opposite of what happens with Freeze in London. That most of my students now, just to remind people, Anindo was at what? What year were you a student in London at the on the MA Art Business? Uh, Twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, um, but um, they tend to say, "Oh, I much preferred Masters. It was better organized. Felt cooler." space than the contemporary whereas you're saying in Mumbai you felt that it was better curated the contemporary compared to the master's session I think because there are there are more uh, galleries focusing on masters yeah and they had to accommodate them it felt a little cramped uh -huh. there were also some which were hybrid galleries or booths which were showcasing both yeah. modern and contemporary works so it felt a little confused hmm. uh, and yes I mean uh I felt it felt less dynamic, less fresh. Contemporary art, obviously, by design feels fresher. Uh, but but I, I think uh, going forward, either they should look for a larger space or they should figure out a better way to curate. And I think in art fairs, layouts also add a lot to the experience because you're experiencing so much art in such yeah. a short span of time. So I think the layout and the design of the booths, they, they also... Uh, play a key role in how long you can survive in that environment without suffering from fatigue. Yeah. So I think those are the, I mean, that's where I'm coming from. But yes, I, I've been to Freeze. So Freeze is a totally different context and environment. So again, not a like-to-like -like comparison. It's a much larger space also, you know, sort of. Uh, this This was happening in Mahalakshmi Racecourse, which is a very marquee location in Bombay, in South Bombay. And and it were uh, they were temporary marquees as they are in London, for the fair. Uh, it's a marquee. So, or a... so so the modern was happening in a perm, sort of uh, inside a building. In a building. Uh, the 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 contemporary one was set up. So it was not happening inside the race course. So it was not. It didn't have the greens. Hmm. It was happening in the members' enclosure, which is where a lot of members' events happen. Yes. So it was a temporary structure uh, and. The space was much smaller. 
relative to what you have in freeze, say. Uh, why the race course? Is it is that there weren't any alternatives? No, just, that, no that's a it's it's a very elitist space. Yeah. And having said that, it's also a very premium space where a lot of high tech, high profile events happen. Yeah. People in the city know about that place, and it's centrally located. And South Mumbai is the traditional high income uh, neighborhood of Mumbai, so for them it is more accessible. It's 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 sort of between South and Central Mumbai, so you know uh, I think it's Mumbai is a city which is very difficult to navigate because of the traffic and it's it's fairly narrow in terms of its topography. So I think they they kept those things in consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in the long term, as they grow, if they have to have 150 or 200 galleries five years or 10 years down the line, they might need a different location or they need to be able to access more space within the Mahalakshmi race course. So you think it, you think there will be more additions? It was generally a success. Yeah, yeah. I think the Mumbai Art Fair will grow year on year. There's far too many tailwinds, uh, macroeconomically, uh, you know, art market wise, and they have not even tapped into the international gallery base right now. And did you know? did did galleries um, report good sales? Uh, so galleries are very loath to share sales data, especially <laughs> Indian galleries. Uh, and and I was reporting it. Uh, during the fair when a lot of sales is booked but not confirmed yeah uh, and uh, there are other variables in play also and it's the first edition but suffice it to say i took a lot of reads and uh, the sales performance was very good so that's why galleries were in general happy mm -hmm. and i think uh, because art market is buoyant uh, galleries are not that worried about sales but it's about meeting new clients mm -hmm. and uh, one of the organizers was actually the Saffron Art team, one mm -hmm. of the founder members. So I think galleries realized that they could access the client base of Saffron Art. Interesting. Uh, which is a very loyal base. Now, collectors will say, no, no, we go to both. We go to galleries as well as auction houses. Yes. But the reality is that, uh, that in India, there's a huge price arbitrage between uh, auction houses and galleries. Galleries, typically, especially primary sales, Emerging artists sell at a much lower price point, yeah. and uh, and and auction houses which sell market validated marquee artists sell at a much different price point. So I mean, in a Venn diagram, there'll obviously be an overlap. Yeah, but I think uh, the galleries would have been fair to expect that they were going to meet new customers. Also, the gallery space is fairly uh, inaccessible. You know, they're usually sometimes by appointment. The doors are closed. You wow. have to. A lot of people don't walk into a gallery because even in London, in Mayfair, for example, sure. it took me a while before I, I got used to the fact that I can just walk in, you know, because they're not really welcoming. But during the art fair, it just completely changes. So I, I think agree. that is the other factor. I agree. that, and, and, it, and it's nice that I think increasingly you're seeing more local galleries. Um, at, I mean, obviously, a lot of this is to do with sustainability. There's a lot of discussions going on at the moment about our art fairs, you know, ecologically. Um, Again, I think I think there's a very Western narrative, and it's completely yeah. irrelevant for India. Oh, really? In the West, you have you have a surfeit of art fairs. There's just too many art fairs, and yeah. they've crowded the calendar. Yeah. But the truth is, a country of India's size and economy has had only one art fair, and yeah. the the main economic hub of the country did not have any art fairs. Common yeah. sense. If you notice, the tourist hotspots usually have the Biennales and yeah. the 
economy hotspots, whether it's a New York or a Miami or a London or a Paris, they have the art fairs. So for Mumbai not to have an art fair, I think was a major gap. And uh, the, the, the carbon footprint and the sustainability aspect happens because you have people from the US jet setting to Basel and then to Zonamaco and then to Pariplu or, you know, to Arco in Madrid. Yeah. And, and burning jet miles. But the Mumbai yeah. Art Fair was very clearly domestic in its focus. So I don't see again that being uh, relevant, no. at least to this edition. Before, um, Anindo, before we talk about the India Art Fair, I was just, you, you just mentioned um, Biennales Biennials and the, the Kochi uh, Biennial. Uh, do you call them Biennales or Biennials in India? <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 uh, <laughs> good spot well i'm always telling my uh, students the biennale is venice it's the right. italian word so, and really you should use biennial for other art, right. art biennials. so so the kochi biennale mm. is india's largest art event sure. it was started in 2012 yep. and it was inspired by the venice biennale yes when when the founders were envisioning it formulating their ideas and plans and strategies and that probably explains why they chose the Italian descriptor rather than biennial. Interesting. Which one would expect because Italy was not the country who colonized us and influenced our language. So, you know. No, that's interesting. Biennial is what would have been expected. But so basically the Kochi Biennale was a sort of uh, coming together between the Kerala government, which is Kerala is the state where Kochi is located. It's in mm -hmm. the southern part of India. It had been a tourist hotspot, but it also wanted to become a cultural hotspot. And two Kerala-based artists, Malayali artists, which is the local artist there, uh, the government and uh, spoke to the local art community and specifically these two artists. And they came up with the idea of starting a Biennale. Mm. And, uh, and, and it has been there for you know, sort of 12 years now. In fact, I attended the last edition. Uh, I spent I spent a week at the last edition rather when it happened in 2022-23. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, has, it has had a checkered past. So fundraising has always been an issue. Uh, it has been partly supported by the government, but, but a event of a Biennale scale needs a lot of fundraising. <laughs> and in India, it's very difficult to raise money internationally because there mm -hmm. are a lot of regulations lot of uh, restrictions rather uh, if I am sitting in India and I want to raise whether as an NGO or as an arts uh, non-profit uh, I mean uh, and, and that's because these funds have been misused in the past people have raised you know got funds from outside and let's say they have been either misused or used in ways which is not acceptable to the national government no. you know uh, terrorism is a major issue nowadays so you have to track how where funds are coming from and where they're going. That's an obvious reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but coming back to the art market. So the, the Kochi Biennale has had a struggle raising funds. Even in the edition in 2018, for example, after the event got over, vendors complained about not being paid for it. That issue continued till the start of the last edition. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not, last it's edition, not a commercial art fair, is it? It's, it's like the, the Biennale. It's not ostensibly. It is a Biennale. In fact, yeah. in fact it, it it is a Biennale in every form and format yeah. and in so every way. It's a cultural, not financial enterprise anyway. Absolutely. And it, it receives uh, more than 600,000 visitors, which is a similar number as the Venice Biennale. Now, Fantastic. one can say that India is a country of a billion people, so it's not that difficult to get a half a million people. But I think 
that is not giving credit to the organizers because India may have a billion people, but the museums are still empty. You know, the the, the museum going culture is not as much there. And, and I think it's not India specific. I mean, I remember when I was in London, I was studying at Sadhvi's. Even the British Museum gets 60, 65% of their visitors pre-pandemic used to be uh, international tourists. Yes. And then you had school groups and empty nesters. So, you know, sort of, uh, so, so, so basically locals don't go to museums, but I think Kochi Biennale as an event has been able to market itself well, both to the local community as well as to the international tourist community who yeah. come to Kerala during that period. And they've really transformed the cultural economy in Kochi. You know, whether it's hotels, Airbnbs, cafes, restaurants, yeah. and the ancillary industry, which benefits from tourism and cultural events like these. So similar, really, to Venice. And of course, Venice, a lot of people don't realize now, it was a commercial, it was a, it was an art fair right. until the 60s when right. the students rebelled and said, we should, you know, yeah. art shouldn't have a financial value. We're, we're still, to a certain extent, living with that legacy of art yeah. schools not like no, no, I, I, I did a case study in fact when i was uh, we had that case study to compare biennales and art fairs if yes, you remember right. and yeah I, I think it's an unsaid thing but a lot of museum curators and even collectors do visit biennales to prospect right. works of course sometimes by at that point and sometimes yeah. later but I yeah. think uh, and you, yeah. I don't know whether did you did we go to Venice the year in 2019? Yeah, yeah of course we went. Yeah. You'll remember uh, the famous phrase. Yeah, we went to the Art Biennale, so we were yeah. lucky. We were the batch. That's right. Not the Art yeah. Well, we're going to the arts in June, and then we're going to take the next year's students to the same art fair in the Art Biennale in um, in November. And then the next year, that 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 next cohort will go in June, and and so we managed to take each year now. It's just that one group ah. goes in winter at the end and the other goes in the, in the summer. But you, know, you, you might remember the uh, see it in Venice, buy it in, my, in, buy it in Basel uh, is the, the phrase, which is why Basel Art, Art Fair takes place so soon after the start of the Venice Biennale, which is a, right. an interesting kind of symbiosis. <laughs> Really, and, right. and so talking about coming on to the Indian Art Fair, which is with the India Art Fair, which is about to take place in a different city in New Delhi, that's coming up right. now in early February. I understand. Would you like to compare and contrast that to Mumbai? And uh, is, does that, yeah, is that... So I'll, I'll, I'll say very briefly. Um, see, the Indian Art Fair is the preeminent art fair. Yeah, it started quite early, around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And uh, now it's getting into its 15th edition, like I was mentioning. And this year, they have increased the number of galleries. They're relatively full strength after the pandemic. Everybody, all art fairs missed a couple of years and beats. So they'll have about 100 galleries. And uh, this year, they've got the new thing that they're doing is they've got a design section. So we're talking about the Venice Biennale. If you remember, we visited the Carpenter's Workshop exhibition, Carpenter's Workshop Gallery they did a brilliant exhibition. I mean, it was one of my most memorable art exhibitions. And they, they work at the intersection of art and design and architecture. So it was in one of the palazzos uh, next to the Grand Canal in Venice. Yes. Uh, so they are participating this year in collaboration with an Indian designer, uh, curating, co-curating the booth. Uh, so I think that is a thing. In terms of international galleries, there's Galleria, Galleria, Continua, which mm -hmm. is uh, London and outposts in Beijing and some places in the US, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but but again, there are a few other international galleries, but like the ones 
at Mumbai got a lot of them are either diaspora run mm -hmm. or they focus on Indian or South Asian art mm -hmm. or they are uh, you know sort of Indian galleries that later move to the uh, to an international location. So there is a strong Indian connection to some of these international galleries. So what is the Indian so, connection for continua? Is no, not one? for continua. Not for continua. That's why I qualified and I mentioned continua separately. But there's sure, they, other ones going... like for example the icon icon gallery is New York based. Yeah. But it is uh, founded, managed, run by uh, people of Indian origin. Yes, sure. But but not continua. So, yeah, similarly, not continuum. So yeah, yeah. Uh, similarly, I said some, most of the other galleries uh, is what I had said. Oh, sorry. Most of I the other international you, galleries. Did yeah. you say that continua was at the India Art Fair or not? Continua is coming to the Indian Art Fair. Yeah, yeah. so they will it be is, bringing non-Indian yeah, art. So, okay. So let me clarify. Uh, none of the alpha galleries are coming. Sure. Uh, Amongst the better known international galleries, the one name that comes to my mind is Galleria it's Continua. The Continua, yeah, yeah. Among the other international galleries, most of them have a strong Indian connection, Indeed, either yeah. because they are founded by the diaspora or owned or managed. Uh, some of them are based in New York, some of them are yes. based in Dubai. Yes. Uh, you know, or, yeah. or they specialize in South Asian art. So again, yes. it makes sense from the market, target market perspective. Yes. So for example, the Grovner Gallery in London in Mayfair that we used to go to, uh, uh, they used to have a lot of exhibitions on Indian and South Asian art. Oh. So they were present in the Art Mumbai uh, and they should, they'll be there in, in, in the India Art Fair as well. So they are, they're not Indian owned, but they focus on South Asian art. Sure. sure. There's an icon have, gallery, have Indian a, owned and yeah. yeah. Have built up a big client base of Indian collectors, presumably. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, Aninda, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at the time. I think that this might have happened last time we, we did a podcast with you. I think we, we, we there were some more things we wanted to talk about, but I, I wonder whether we could bring it to a close now. My and, suggestion um, is you can edit out a little bit on the introduction if you wish to, and then add maybe 10 minutes here or five minutes here and we can wrap up. Well, no, I, I think it would be good to... To, to do another one, maybe following the... Are you going to the India Art Fair? Will you be... Um, will I you might be go. As of now, I'm slated to go, but I have something else to also cover. So, uh, because I'm, I'm actually going uh, for the Colombo Scope uh, in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, and then there's the Gaul Literature Festival. So I'm pretty much traveling till the end of this month. Interesting. So that's a long... I, I, think, I think there's another... There's another podcast, though, that we should do. Uh, I think that the listeners would really like to know about um, about the... Yeah, yeah the we can, I think the areas that we've not covered are on the institutional side, the wider art ecosystem, so the museums, uh, the foundations, as well as uh, the artists. I think I the emerging and, and artists. The government, for example, which I think is key in a country like India. So. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll have a part two then. So we're, we're, we're following the podcast, I'll let the listeners know those are the things we could focus on yes uh, yeah no because the, we have so it could be a series thing but it will be comprehensive on the indian art market and the indian art ecosystem so i think some of your students if they want to get deeper for their dissertation or some of yeah. the recent uh, pass outs if they're trying to focus on that on this yeah. market i think they could approach it that way yeah. and and um some of some of our current students are they don't know it yet but we're going to introduce them to an optional activity whereby we pair, pair them up 
with um with emerging Indian artists who are part of this uh, the Arts Family Art Prize, uh, which is run by Neha Jaiswal, who's another <laughs> Southern Business Institute London MA Art Business uh, alumna. So that I think that those people will be therefore interested in us having a, a conversation about who's hot, who's not amongst the, the maybe the younger, more emerging Indian artists. I think that that would make a really good focus for the next podcast. Sure. sure. Yeah. Anyway, I'd like yeah, to thank you very good. much, Anindo, for uh, joining us today. And it's very, very exciting. This is the the, the start of the new year uh, and the first podcast of the new year. And I, I think it's really, really interesting and I think very nice for us in the Northern Hemisphere and um, in the West in, in, in winter. Uh, to, to 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 talk about these uh, what we see as exotic places, which has always, I think, been obviously an attraction. I think uh, to to for Western yeah. collectors that they that, that to, to buy what they see as exotic art and from a place that they'd really like to be in and go to. You know, I guess that's it. So thank you very much. Yeah, I think yeah, I think Indian art, especially contemporary art, is far more globalized. Yep, and uh, a, a lot of research based uh, and 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 what i like about we've spoken more about the market side of things but i think in terms of creative practice in terms of creative process and in terms of the materiality uh, what i really like about what's happening in contemporary art is there's a lot of research based practice uh, which is closely uh, embedded in the socio-cultural issues absolutely uh, which makes the art really meaningful conceptually but also uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the works uh, are, are they have great aesthetic value as well so just because they're research-based doesn't mean that the presentation is not great which is usually you know getting both right is a challenge I think that's there and there's a lot of Younger artists, uh, women artists, and artists which who were not as represented earlier, they're finding a voice sure, in terms of materials. That that's happening in a lot of, as well. And I yeah. think a lot of younger galleries are also helping. The, yeah. in, especially the contemporary art galleries, there are a lot of younger galleries who've come in. Yeah. And their curation, approach to curation, is obviously far more dynamic and inclusive. Yeah, it's happening, happening with London art schools and artists. There's more of those um, art school artists now appearing in the big commercial right. contemporary galleries in, in Mayfair. I just and wanted I think to finish... final point before we segue into the whenever we do the next episode is is that a lot of uh, a lot of artists are now getting institutional recognition also, sure. which was That's lacking true. earlier. So yeah. I think that is what gives them an opportunity to practice outside the diktat of the art market yeah absolutely uh, so i think that's important just to, i mean just briefly um jitish kalat so there's an indian contemporary artist jitish kalat am i pronouncing yeah. it right we saw his work at it's the venice Biennale in 2019 yeah so if you remember so, we saw his work at the india pavilion in the venice biennale in 2019 right. yep yep the center uh installation where you had the Gandhi's letter that he wrote to Hitler. That's the uh, yeah, and it was a hit with all our yeah, classmates. With all the students, but, a lot of time there. But yeah. recently, um, even the current students might have seen his work in the courtyard of Somerset House on the river in London, uh, where he right. had these fantastic spirals that were were made up of British motorway blue background signs. 
Um, and, and it's all about sustainability. And I think he's touring the work and he's shown it underwater in an in a, in a Indian archaeological site. It's, and it's all, going, it's all going to be recycled afterwards. So he's yeah. hitting all of the kind of right, ticking all the right boxes, really, in terms of sustainability and contemporary art. And very easy to look at, very easy to experience, very beautiful. Right. He's, he's one of the contemporary artists at the forefront. Yep. Anyway, we will talk about Jitish Kalat and 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 other other artists and less well known emerging artists um, in our in our next podcast. So thank you very much, Anindo. Look forward to that. <laughs>